Good morning. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, I am thrilled to be here with you this morning. <laughs> yeah, say it like you actually mean it. Well, good morning. I'm afraid I don't have any anecdotes about my cute daughter to share with you to sort of win your hearts over because I don't have a daughter yet. When I do, I'll be glad to share them with you. Uh, why don't we pray before we start? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for everything that you do in our lives and everything you've done for us now and throughout history. Jesus, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us in a new and fresh way this morning and we, we open our hearts to you so that we might know and have fresh revelation of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We've been doing the Ten Commandments this year. We've been doing one commandment per month, and we've been looking at them in reverse order. So we're almost at the first commandment. This is the last week of the second commandment. Do not make any idols. Do not make and worship idols. That's my abbreviation of it. <coughs> If any of you knew me in primary school, you would have known that I love castles. I don't know if you're with me on this, but I love castles. To the point where, at lunchtime, I would go to the library and search on the database to see what books they had on castles, and I would pull all the books on castles out and open them up and research. They're just so cool, aren't they? I mean, they've got a big moat around it, you know, the drawbridge, the portcullis can come down, and then they've got the provisions for people to tip stones and tar and boiling hot oil on your head. I mean, you can't get much cooler and grittier than that, can you? I mean, these are really well-designed things. And Kirsty and I, when we were on our trips to Germany and to England, we were lucky enough to go on some castle tours. We've seen a few castle tours now. Uh, some of them are like the old ruins, and some of them are the newer ones, like the ones in England, like Tower of England. Is that right? No, Tower of London, excuse me. And, uh, you know, places where royal people live. Windsor Castle, beautiful places. And there's one thing that I've found in all my research that is a common thread in castles. When you get to the throne room of the castle, there's one throne in the middle. And the thrones come in all different shapes, all different sizes, all different kinds of designs. But here's what they're not. They're not a throne pew. They are made for one person and one person only. We are designed to have God sitting on the throne of our life. And our throne room has one throne which is made for one person only. It is not a throne pew. And that is why God says, don't create or, or worship any idols because I don't want them sitting on the throne with me. The throne's designed for me and me alone. Whew, I'm getting so excited about castles, I'm all puffed out. My goodness. Over the past two weeks, we've been challenged to ask ourselves, <coughs> what idols do I have in my life? What have I got sitting on the throne of my life where God should be sitting? We've discovered that idols are whatever takes the place that God should rightfully occupy in our lives. They take many different forms. They can take the forms of career, money, fame, 
possessions, culture, sex, relationships, other religions, the occult, all sorts of things. Whatever it is, there are places where God should be. That is what we call an idol. And we discussed how when in trouble, when we're in trouble, the idols we've put so much into become useless. They are useless. They can't rescue us, they can't redeem us, and they can't restore us. And so this week, what I want to look at is the positive side to this commandment. This is something we've been doing at the end of each commandment. We've been looking at, well, if God doesn't want us to do this, what does He want us to do? What's the thing that we actually should be moving towards? And so the positive side of do not make idols is to know the real deal. Know what's the real deal. Know what's the truth. If the idol is not meant to be sitting on the throne, who is, who is meant to be sitting on the throne? So God commands us to remove whatever idols we have so that we can put Him at the center of our life. If you had come to me 12 years ago before I became a Christian and said that I should put God on the throne of my life, I would have laughed at you. I would have said, how can you even know that there is a God? I would have said to you, if there is a God, there are so many gods. And so how do you know that you've got the right one? I want to talk about some of these questions this morning because there are so many questions that we can ask. But so many of our questions can be answered by finding the answer to one question. And this one question, when we ask ourselves this question, it's three simple words, it can completely change our life. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Some of you this morning know who Jesus is. Some of you think you know who Jesus is. Some of you don't have any idea who Jesus is. If you've come into a relationship with Jesus and you've known him for many years, then this is going to be a great sermon where you can take notes and figure out what it is that you can share with your friends who don't know Jesus. If you're on the edge, we're going to talk about some good questions this morning. We're going to ask a lot of prickly questions like, how do we know that Jesus actually rose from the dead? How do we know that the Bible is actually real and true? How do we know that the disciples didn't just steal Jesus' body and say, oh, he rose from the dead? We're going to ask a lot of these questions, and so we're going to talk about them in a really fair and practical way. If you think about, if you ask yourself, who is the most famous person in all of history? It has to be Jesus, doesn't it? He is so famous. If Jesus had a Twitter account, I'm sure that he would have many more followers than uh, Justin Bieber. I think, is he, the, is he the top rating at the moment? Ashton Kutcher was up there for a little while. I know, right? Incredible. At the moment, there are 2.2 billion people all around the world who call Jesus their Lord and say, I am following Jesus. The Bible has sold more than, uh, more than any other book in the history of the world. Our historical records, our calendar, are literally divided by his life. We talk about the year 2014 AD. AD stands for Anno Domini. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but it's Latin for the year of our Lord. BC, before that, stands for before Christ. I don't know about you, but that's pretty substantial. Nobody, nobody says, oh, we're 27 years post-Brendan. <laughs> no, he, he's significant. 
we use his name as a swear word. How many other people do you know that we use their name as a swear word? Oh, Elvis Presley. <laughs> smacks on a smacks in the face. SpongeBob SquarePants. It doesn't happen. It's very difficult to ignore Jesus. Millions of people don't believe in Jesus. Millions of people do believe in Jesus. Everyone seems to, be, to believe different things about him. And so who is right? I had a conversation with a friend of mine once. We were talking about faith. And he's an atheist. And it came down to this. I asked him, well then who do you think Jesus is? His answer was, well Jesus was probably a group of people who did many different things, and those different myths and stories were collected and compiled to form the story that people talk about is Jesus. I was quite shocked by that, because, not because it challenged my faith, because I thought to myself, this is a guy who loves figuring things out. This is a guy who puts a lot of stake in logic and intellect, but in this one area, it seems that he's let go of all logic reasoning and reached a completely illogical conclusion. Why? I couldn't help but think, because if you want to remain an atheist, at some stage, you have to start ignoring the facts. Otherwise, acknowledging Jesus will mean that you have to question everything that you believe. And that be can become uncomfortable. And so sometimes we reach conclusions that are illogical to, to avoid confronting our own beliefs. You see, people think Christians don't think. <laughs> they think because we think differently to how they think that we don't think <laughs> at all. But we do think. <laughs> Is anyone a thinker in the house this morning? So, let's think together for a little bit. Let's look at the New Testament. Regardless of whether they're a Christian or a Muslim or a Buddhist or an atheist, there are no serious historians that would deny that Jesus actually existed. All of them would agree that there is too much evidence that Jesus lived on earth. First, there is evidence outside of the Bible. The Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius speak about him. The Jewish historian Josephus, writing very close to Jesus' time, said this. We can get the quote up, Michelle. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it is lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as receive the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. So this is something from a historical account, not from the Bible. He goes on to talk about Jesus' Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. And so there's evidence outside the New Testament from credible historical sources. And then there's evidence inside of the New Testament. Some people would say, well, the accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible were written a very long time ago. How do we know that they are actually accurate reports? How do we know that people didn't just accidentally change it over time? Well, the answer is, we do know <laughs> We can know very accurately by comparing the Gospels to other historical texts around the time. And it's a method called textual criticism. Basically, the method asks two questions. How quickly after the original was written 
was the earliest copy made? And two, how many copies are there? You've been reading your Bible thinking, oh, I've just got to take this on faith, haven't you? But here we can ask these two questions. The m- basically, it comes down to this. The more copies we have, and the earlier they were written, the less doubt there is about the accuracy of the original text. So let's look at some other texts around the time. Herodotus' Histories was written in the 5th ben- century BC. The earliest copy that, w- that we have is around AD 900. So there's a 1,300-year gap. Caesar's Gallic War, 950-year gap between the original and the first copy. Livy's Roman History, 900-year gap between the original and the first copy. And there's no classical scholar excuse me, who would doubt the authenticity of these works. So let's look at the New Testament. The books of the New Testament were written between 40 and 100 AD. The earliest copies we have begin in AD 130. And we have full manuscripts by 350 AD. So depending on how you see it, there is at most only a 300-year gap and at very least a 30-year gap between the original and the earliest dated copy that we have. That is remarkable. What about the number of copies? Herodotus' histories, 8 copies. Caesar's Gallic War, 10 copies. Livy's Roman history, 20 copies. The New Testament, 24,300 copies. 5,309 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and 9,300 other manuscripts. F.J.A. Hort, who was one of the greatest textual critics ever, said this. Let's get it up, Michelle. In the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writings. What you have in your hands is remarkable. It stands out. And there's no secular historian that would disagree with that. So we know, we know that this man, Jesus, existed. So, but what, but what does that mean? But who was he, though? Was he a teacher? Was he a prophet? What do we know? What do you know about Jesus? Let's turn it into Q&A. Okay, I'll, I'll start. Well, our accounts tell us he was born a little over 2,000 years ago. In Israel, he was fully human. Some people think that Jesus is like just this idea. But the Bible tells us that he's human, and history tells us he's human. He has a human body. He can be tired, hungry. He can suffer pain. He can feel love and joy and sadness. And he has human experiences like being born, growing up and being educated, temptation, work, suffering, rejection, death. Some people would say, okay, yes, but he, he, so he existed. I, I know he existed. I can't refute that fact. But Jesus was a human being, and he was only a human being. He's maybe a great religious teacher, but no more than that, just a human. The Scottish comedian Billy Connolly said this. What's his accent sound like? I can't believe in Christianity. But I think Jesus was a wonderful man. He was a great religious teacher. So maybe like Buddha or Gandhi. Muslims would tell you that Jesus is a prophet and only a prophet. But there are other views of this man, Jesus. Who knows who Bono is? 
If you don't know who Bono is, he's the lead singer of U2, and U2 is the band that Apple bought you the album recently and downloaded it to your iPhone. An interviewer asked the rock star Bono this, Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers, but son of God, isn't that a little far-fetched? Bono replied, no, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christian story story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, but actually Jesus doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says, I am God incarnate. So what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, or he was a complete nutcase. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that is far-fetched. So what evidence have we got that Jesus was more than just a great religious teacher? I want to give you three pieces of evidence this morning. If you're taking notes, the first is his teaching centered on himself. So most good religious teachers point away from themselves and to God. They say, don't look at me, look at God. When Jesus pointed to God, he pointed to himself. In other words, he was saying that it's through him that we encounter God. In every human heart, there is hunger. And there are many leading psychologists of the 20th century that have already recognized this. Jung said, people are hungry for security. Alda said, people are hungry for significance. Freud said, people are hungry for love. You see, all of our idols, they attempt to satisfy that hunger. Someone said to me last week, they said, they'd heard that, that we all have a God-shaped hole on the inside of us. That's like the hunger that we try and fuel. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. If you want those hungers satisfied, come to me. Many people suffer from depression and despair, like an emotional darkness. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Many people are afraid of death. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will live even though they die. Someone asked Mother Teresa shortly before she died, are you at all afraid of dying? And her answer was, how can I be? Dying is going home to God. I've never been afraid. On the contrary, I'm looking forward to it. Other religious teachers in the past have said, that is the way, that is the truth, that is the life. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Many people are burdened by worries, guilt, and stress. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Many people aren't sure what they should be doing with their lives and who they should follow. Jesus said, follow me. Jesus said to receive him was to receive God. He said to welcome him was to welcome God. He said to, to have seen him was to have seen God. The second thing is the indirect claims of Jesus. Jesus claimed to be able to forgive people. Now, you and I can forgive other people of the things that they do to us. If you 
hit me in the face, David, I can say, well, I forgive you. But Jesus claimed to do something different. He claimed to forgive someone of something that they did to someone else. So, well, what? so if Ellen slaps Ashley in the face and I say, Ellen, it's okay, I forgive you. She said, well, I didn't do it to you. What do you mean, I forgive you? To forgive someone who's hurt someone else is something that only God can do. And when Jesus claimed the authority to be able to forgive everybody, he was accused of blasphemy. The lawyers said to him, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus claimed he was the one who was going to judge the world. He said that one day all the nations would be gathered before him and he would separate them off. He said he would make the decision according to how we have responded to him, Jesus, in this life. These are not the kind of things that a great religious teacher would say. Imagine there's a great religious teacher in church and you come to church and you sit down and you start to listen to the message and I get up here and I say to you, guys, one day I am going to judge the world and the test is going to be how you've responded to me and me alone. Would you think, what a great religious teacher? No, you think, I'm going to a different church. Number three is his direct claims. In John 10.30, we read this. Jesus says, I, am the fa- I and the Father are one. So the Jews pick up stones to stone him, but Jesus says to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of those do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, for blasphemy because you, a mere human being, claimed to be God. Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be God. But that is not the end of the argument. Because all sorts of people can make claims. Just because people claim something, it doesn't make it true. There are many people around the world, some of them in mental health institutions, who are deluded. They think that they are Napoleon. They think that they're Elvis Presley or the Pope. Or that they think that they're God. And they're not. We know that they're not. So what do you do? How can you test someone's claim? How can you test Jesus' claim? If he claimed that he was a unique son of God, God made human, how do we test that? I'm sure you're enjoying this this morning because you're thinking, well, I'd already believed in him. So you're doing all the work to do the really hard skeptical thinking. I know, it's all right, you can thank me later. (laughs) There seem to be three logical possibilities here. Number one, it was not true that Jesus was the Son of God, but Jesus didn't realize that it wasn't true. In that case, Jesus was deluded or insane. The second option is this. It wasn't true, and Jesus knew that it wasn't true. In that case, he was an imposter and an evil one at that. If you say, everyone, follow me, give your lives to me, and he knows he's not the Son of God, but he's saying he is the Son of God, he's evil. The third option is this. The third logically possible one is that it's true. Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God. C.S. Lewis put it like this. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be insane or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else he's insane or something worse. 
but don't let's come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us, and he didn't intend to. So we're going to look at a few more pieces of evidence. The first is his teaching. The teaching of Jesus is widely accepted to be the greatest teaching ever fallen from anyone's lips. Love your neighbor as yourself, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, do to others what you would have to do to them. No, that's not what it is. Do to others what you would have them do to you. <laughs> Jesus didn't make any of these fumbles. See how incredible he was? <coughs> there was a Church of, Church of England minister who was doing a wedding in the Swiss Alps and uh, the family invited him up to a restaurant on top of the mountain the night before. And the only way to get to the mountain is a ski lift. And on the way down from the ski lift, he finds himself sitting next to Eric Idle. Eric Idle is one of the people from Monty Python, the creators of Monty Python, the great comedians of their age. And Eric Idle got to talking with him, and, and he said this about Jesus. He said, we looked for comedy in the Gospels. We looked to poke fun at Jesus for the things that he said, but we couldn't. We found that Jesus' teaching was brilliant. It all seemed to make sense. What a shame. We're making progress in every field of science and technology. We travel faster, we know more, and yet in 2,000 years, no one has improved on the moral teaching of Jesus Christ. They're the kind of words you'd expect God to speak. What we have to ask ourselves is, could that teaching have come from someone who was insane or evil? The second is his works. Jesus must have been the most extraordinary person to be around. Imagine going to a party with Jesus. You, just, you know, he doesn't just go and drink the wine. When people run out of wine, he's like, it's all right, I've got, I've got you covered. I'll shout another round. He turned water into wine. Imagine going on a picnic with Jesus. Oh, we're out of food. That happened as well. There were 5,000 people in the desert, and they were so excited to hear about Jesus' teaching that they all forgot to bring food except for one guy. He says, no worries, I've got it covered. He multiplies the food so that he feeds all 5,000. Imagine going to a funeral with Jesus. Everyone else goes to a funeral with Jesus. You sit there, you just sit there, watch the eulogy. Yes, 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 it's very sad. Jesus doesn't do that at all. He comes to his friend's funeral and he goes to the tomb and he says, take the stone away from the door. His disciples say, we can't do that. He's been dead for four days, it'll stink. Jesus said, take the stone away. So they, they move the stone away and he calls out, right, Lazarus, come out. His friend Lazarus, who was previously dead, walks out of the tomb. Imagine, imagine going to a funeral with Jesus. I've got the casket sitting at the front and, and everyone's very sad and somber and then you get that opportunity where you can go out the front and throw rose petals on the coffin or something, you know, and everyone's walking up and Jesus is like, how do you open this? <laughs> and he said, we can't open it. It's a coffin, there's a dead person in there. Everyone's very, look at the family. The family's very upset. So I want to open the coffin. So the disciples bring out like a big crowbar and <laughs> yank open the coffin, open it up. He says, right, get up. And this dead person just sits up out of the coffin. Jesus, what do you do? Don't insult the family. They're not going to be insulted. They just got a family member back. <laughs> it's not just his miracles. It's his love. 
Jesus continually reached out in love, touching people that society had rejected. The lepers, the outcasts, he transformed people's lives as he is still doing today. Number three is his character. Jesus' character has impressed millions who wouldn't necessarily call themselves Christians. Time magazine called Jesus the most persistent symbol of purity, selflessness and love in the history of Western man. And then, of course, the real test of character is when you're under pressure. If you're stressed at work or you're in pain or something, you've got a headache, you know when you've got a really bad migraine or something, you tend to be a bit more grumpy, don't you? So here's Jesus. He's been flogged by the Romans. He's in excruciating pain. He's hanging on a cross. He's being crucified. He's about to die. That's the time when you're allowed to be a bit grumpy. (laughs) And yet, Jesus looks down at the people who are doing it to him and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus fulfilled many Old Testament prophecies. We're going to leave that to the lead up to Christmas. Number five, he conquered death. The writer and atheist Richard Dawkins said this, If the resurrection is not true, Christianity becomes null and void. He's a very strong atheist, and on that point, I agree with him. If he didn't rise from the dead, then we're all kidding ourselves. So what evidence is there that he rose from the dead? Because this is a really important point. Number one, there's no Jesus in the tomb. There's no body. (laughs) What happened to his body? When I read the resurrection story, my mind concocts theories for what could have happened to his body. I don't know if you do the same thing. Mm, I wonder if such and such happened, or maybe they're not telling us this. But none of them make sense. You could say, maybe Jesus really didn't die on the cross, he just fainted from the pain, and then recovered in the cool of the tomb, got out of the grave clothes, pushed away the stone, and ran away. But it's ridiculous. Jesus had been through a Roman flogging, Many people die just from the flogging alone. Then he'd been crucified. People do not survive Roman crucifixion. His body was cocooned in heavy grave clothes, placed in a tomb and cut out of the rock. That was cut out of the rock. A stone weighing a ton and a half was rolled in front of the tomb. That's not easy to move at the best of times. And here you've got this very, like, beaten up Jesus inside the tomb, inside these grave clothes, and, it, and on top of all of that, it was guarded by Roman soldiers. And then there's this very interesting piece of evidence in John 19:33. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Oh, why didn't they break his legs? Maybe they, were t- maybe they were trying to let him go to the tomb so he could walk out afterwards because he wasn't really dead. There was a sudden flow of blood and water. If you're a medical student or you're, or you're a medical professional, we have since discovered through modern medicine that when someone dies, your blood separates into clot and serum. And so if you let the flow come out, it looks like blood and water. They weren't aware of that at the time. They just wrote down what they saw. They stabbed him in the side and water and blood came out. Other people have said maybe the disciples came. They stole away the body and began a rumor that Jesus had risen from the dead. 
Let's ignore the fact that the tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers. It's still highly probable. You've got disciples who are depressed. Their leader has just been killed. They'd put all of their hope in him and he's died. Then something extraordinary happened that transformed them, so much so that they were willing to suffer and die themselves. Years later, many of the disciples were tortured. They were executed for what they believed about Jesus. If they knew that Jesus' body was buried in their back garden and someone comes and says, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? I'm going to kill you if you say yes. Don't you think someone would have said, no, actually, he's in my back garden. (laughs) Others have said, maybe the authorities stole the body. That's stupid too. If the authorities stole the body, when people start saying, Jesus is risen from the dead, all they had to do was produce the body and say, no, he didn't. But nobody produced the body. Others have said, maybe robbers stole the body. But the tomb only had one thing in it that would have been worth anything to the robbers, and that's the grave clothes filled with expensive spices. Now, when they went to the tomb, they found the tomb empty. The only thing that was left was the grave clothes. Then he appears to his disciples resurrected from the dead. Some people would say, oh, well, that's a hallucination. I'm going through all the options here. I don't want to leave anything unsaid because I don't want you going to think, oh, well, he just left that out. What if it was such and such? That was just a hallucination. Right, some people do hallucinate. Normally, people that hallucinate are highly strung, highly imaginative, very nervous or sick or on drugs. The disciples don't fit any of those categories. We're talking about burly fishermen and tax collectors. We're talking about realists and cynics and skeptics. Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, said, I'm not going to believe until I see it for myself. And so Jesus comes to him and shows him the wounds in his hands and his feet. And Thomas says, I believe you are the Son of God. He appears to over 500 people on 11 different occasions. How likely is it that all of those people would share the same hallucination? The hallucinations, hallucinations are like seeing a ghost. But that's not what we see here. Jesus comes, he talks to them, and he, he, <laughs> he says, uh, I'm hungry, give me some food. And so they give him a piece of broiled fish. He ate it in their presence. I don't know what ghosts you've met, but ghosts don't eat fish. <laughs> then the disciples are transformed, the Christian church is born. The question we have to ask is, what caused the radical change if it wasn't the resurrection? And now, we have Christians' experience through the ages, since Jesus. We have billions of people. First, it was thousands, then it was millions, then it was billions, that claim that they have experienced Jesus Christ. It's people of every color, every race, every tribe, every continent, every nationality, from every economic, social, intellectual background. They all unite in a common experience of Christ. You know, I love Chris Young's testimony. One week he comes to church and that week he decides he's going to ask Jesus to come into his heart. And I asked him, how's he going, you know, before that? And he says, ah, very busy, very busy. I've got lots on, lots to do with the university and my wife's still back in China and and my daughter and, (coughs) you know, there's lots, there's lots happening. It's quite stressful. The next week, after he'd given his life to Jesus, he comes back in. I say, Chris, 
How you going? He says, yes, yes. Very stressful. <laughs> Lots going on, he says. Wife's back in China, lots of study to do. But everything is better. All of the circumstances are the same, and yet everything is better. Over the last 12 years, I've experienced the love of Jesus. And so in the light of what Jesus claimed about himself, there are those three logical possibilities that you and I need to answer for ourselves this morning. Was Jesus insane? Was he evil? Or was he God? The fictional detective Sherlock Holmes said this, when you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. As we look at the evidence about what Jesus taught, what he did, his character, his fulfillment of prophecy, his resurrection from the dead, surely we can eliminate the impossible that Jesus was insane. Surely we can eliminate the impossible that Jesus was evil. And therefore, as Sherlock Holmes put it, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Jordan, can I get you up? C.S. Lewis, Lewis put it like this. We're faced then, you and I are faced this morning, with a frightening alternative. The man that we're talking about was and is just what he said, or else insane or worse. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither insane nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. This is the God that we worship. This is Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. This is the God who says, our idols are second best. Whatever you've put on the throne of your life, is second best to me on the throne of your life. And now it's up to us to respond. So this morning, I want to ask you a question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he mad? Is he evil? Or is he the Son of God? Because if he's the Son of God, then we have only two options. Will you accept him or will you reject him? You know, before I became a Christian, I used to go to this Christian camp and uh, they used to talk about Jesus all the time. And I would just try and avoid the topic and get them to talk about something different. Because I looked at the Bible and I thought, God is old. He's outdated. He's not relevant anymore. It's just a big book full of rules. Why does that apply to me? He was impersonal, distant, and blurry. And then one night we're in our bunkhouse and we get this knock on the door. And, and, and the people from the bunkhouse next door had come over to us and they said, something incredible's happened. You've got to come and take a photo so we can remember this time. And I was sitting there thinking, what's going on? I thought they were pranking us. So we all hid in the toilet until the, the leader didn't come back for a long time. And, and he finally comes back and he says, we're like, what happened? What happened? He says, I think tonight two people have given their lives to Jesus. You see, I didn't speak Christianese. So I didn't know what he was talking about. I thought they'd committed suicide. <laughs> My heart sank. 
Oh my gosh, two people have given their lives to Jesus. And my friend says, great, let's go and congratulate them. I said, what? Oh, I understand. They've decided to follow Jesus. And so we go around to the next bunkhouse and we open the door. This is a bunkhouse full of guys, teenagers, who all play rugby, they're big muscle, go, and they're all crying. What's going on here? Everyone's crying. So what happened? Did someone hurt themselves? The bunkhouse leader says, well, (laughs) I hadn't prepared anything for the discussion tonight. I was meant to, but I didn't. So I was stuck. So I just opened the Bible and I just started to read the Bible. And, And as I was reading, the presence of God came. The Holy Spirit came. And one by one, every person in that room began to feel the presence of God and they began to cry. I thought, this is not the God that I know about, this weird, distant, old, out-of-date God. He's right here in this room. So I went back to my room. I asked my Christian friend, I said, hey, how do I become a Christian? He says, I don't know. I've been a Christian all my life. I don't know how to do it. He says, all right, we'll, we'll ask someone tomorrow. So we go to sleep. The next day he says, come with me. We're going to ask someone. This guy knows everything. We go to, go to this bunkhouse. He's playing mini golf. I say, hey, I want to become a Christian. I want to, I don't know, I don't know how to do it. What am I supposed to do? He says, it's really easy. We just, we just pray together and ask Jesus to come into your heart. I said, great, finish your mini golf game first. He says, absolutely not. What if Jesus comes back before I finish a mini golf game? You want to be sorted. Jesus said, no one gets to the Father except through me, right? He says, when you die to go to heaven, you need to believe in me. And so he didn't want Jesus to come back or for me to die before the end of the middle golf game. He wanted me to be sorted. So he says, okay. So he brings me back into the bunkhouse. And he says, let's pray. All you have to do is say, God, I'm sorry for what I've done in the past. I want you to come into my heart and I'll live for you in the future. And so we did that. I felt this incredible peace come over me. And this weight lifted off my shoulders. There was the presence of God coming into my life. And since that day, my life has not been the same. Jesus extends the same invitation to every one of us. He says, do you believe that I'm the Son of God? Do you want me in your life? If so, all we have to do is pray. Ask Jesus to come into your heart. And because my life has been changed, I want to offer you that opportunity this morning. I want to ask you, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? If so, this morning... Let's pray together and ask Him to come into your life. Let's ask Him to fill you with His new life. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. Now, I'm not going to get people out the front this morning, so you don't need to feel nervous about that. But what we do want to do is we want to pray with you after the service, if that's you this morning. And so I'm going to ask you, if you're here this morning and, you're gonna, and, and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you want to ask Him to come into your heart, I would ask you to just put up your hand so that we know who you are and we can pray together. Thank you, I see that hand. Thank you, I see that hand. Thank you, I see that hand. Is there anyone, is there anyone else here this morning? Thank you. You can put your hand down once you put it up. Is there anyone else here this morning? You're saying, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I want to ask Him to come into my heart. Maybe you've done it in the past. 
that your life has turned away from God. He's no longer on the throne and you want to put him back on the throne. If that's you here this morning, would you raise your hand and say, that's me, we'll pray together. Fantastic. Thank you, I see that hand. Is there anyone, anyone else before we close? Awesome. Why don't we stand together? We're going to pray together. Those four people who put up their hands, I'm so proud of you. That's fantastic. What an awesome decision that you've made. What we're going to do is we're going to pray all of us together, but not just for the people who are doing it for the first time. Every one of us, we're now concluding our series on idols. If you put up your hand, we're going to pray together in a second. If you have an idol in your life, if you have something else sitting on the throne, this morning, we're going to pray the same prayer together. We're going to turn from our old ways and receive Jesus. We're going to turn from our old ways and receive Jesus. So why don't you close your eyes with me. Let's pray together. Why don't you repeat after me? Dear Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I thank you for dying on the cross so that I can have a relationship with my Father in heaven. I turn from my old ways and I receive you into my life. I open my heart to you, Jesus. And I ask you to come and be my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Incredible. Fantastic. If you put up your hand, I'm going to send some people to come and talk to you afterwards and give you something to help you follow Jesus, and uh, we'll help you with that. But uh, fantastic decision. Thanks so much.